Go ahead and find 1 Kings chapter 4 with me. 1 Kings 4. This is 1 Kings 4, beginning in verse 29. 1 Kings 4 and verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, Emen, Kalkol, and Darda, the sons of Maol. And his fame was in all the surrounding regions. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of earth who had heard of his wisdom. When they say the name Solomon, what are the sorts of uh, thoughts that come into your head? I think the list of answers would overall be pretty positive. Um, He was a great king. He was the builder of the temple. Uh, Jesus himself commented on the glory of Solomon. Uh, he, He put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Observe the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. And so Solomon is sort of proverbial for a glorious king. But I think maybe the first answer is the passage we just read in 1 Kings 4, which speaks of really the defining characteristic of Solomon, which is his wisdom, a wisdom that surpasses all other men of his era. People would come from all over to listen to Solomon hold forth on any number of subjects. Fittingly, Solomon wrote much of the Bible's wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, the Songs of Solomon, Solomon was just an impressive man by many measures. But when you go forward a few pages in your Bible to 1 Kings 11, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time, 1 Kings 11, the story of Solomon changes. You see seeds of it before that, but in chapter 11, it all comes unraveled for him. And what I want us to do this morning is to study this chapter about the wisest man who ever lived and how he started acting like an absolute Fool. I want us to think this morning about Solomon, the foolish, wise man. There is this strange irony about him. A wise man can act so foolish. And I think if we can understand that strange irony about Solomon, that a wise man can act so foolish, I think we can gain insight about ourselves. We can be accomplished, and we can be savvy, and we can be smart, and we can be wise in many ways. We can be appointed to high positions of leadership. We can show ourselves be exemplary in our jobs and in any number of ways, we can have all of that to our credit and then go and do something that is absolutely foolish. Smart people can do really dumb things. It happens all the time. Solomon's story reveals how that happened to him. And I want to say if it can happen to him, it can certainly happen to us. So I have three points this morning, and each of them will answer this question. How is it that the wisest man who ever lived could make such dumb choices? Three ideas from 1 Kings 11. Number one, simply this. He disobeys God's word. And so we begin in 1 Kings 11. See if you can observe how Solomon does this, how he disobeys God's word. What exactly in God's word did he not do? And I'll give you a hint. It will not be difficult. 
1 Kings 11 and verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after, the, after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the, follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. So the author of Kings makes sure every reader knows absolutely clear what God's word was. Not only did God say not to marry foreign women, he also said what would happen if they did. Verse 2 again, you shall not enter into marriage, this is God's law, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. That was God's word to all of his covenant people. And when the monarchy was instituted in Israel... God made sure his kings knew they were as subject to the covenant stipulations as anyone else. They were not exempt from them. For example, the kings were supposed to record by hand the entire law, by their own hand, to record the entire law as they swore to keep it personally and to lead the nation in keeping it. God wants them to know, king, not only are you not exempt from this law, I hold you to special account for how you lead my people in keeping it and how you keep it yourself. And then here comes wife Solomon. Solomon who knows something about the world, about all different parts of the world, about trees and about animals and about politics and about, and about child rearing, just everything you could want to know, Solomon knows about it. And I don't know for sure his inner psychology, but perhaps, perhaps he began to think, you know, I know better. And it won't happen to me. And that law there about marrying foreign women, I understand it. It's there, all right. It's there for the more simple-minded, perhaps. Not the wisest man who ever lived. Not, not an author of Scripture. Don't you know how kings operate? Verse 4 gives us a frank summary. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. This was not a matter of Solomon becoming just slightly, committed, slightly less committed to God either. Verse 5 says he begins worshiping idols himself. Verse 7 says he begins to build monuments to them. Verse 8 says he wanted his wives to have all the idols' temples their hearts desired. And I also think we need to say this is not an overnight process. It all sort of comes to a head here in this chapter. But if we were to go back, we would see seeds of it being sown. Solomon did not wake up one day and say, You know, I'll think I'll forsake the one true and living God and I'll marry 700 worldly women, and I'll have 300 concubines, and then I'll start building altars to idols. He didn't wake up one day and say that. <clears throat> I suspect if he were to ask the middle-aged Solomon who is writing the Proverbs whether he would ever consider doing any of these things, I suspect he would probably scoff at that idea. 
But one neglect of God's word led to another. A small disobedience paved the way for a bigger disobedience. A small inner sin, like perhaps pride, leads to disaster for the nation. Solomon is a poster child for the idea that no one is immune from temptation and no one is exempt from the consequences of breaking God's word. God's word says what it says for a reason, and it says it to me every bit as much as the next person, no matter how smart I think I am, no matter how much I think I understand the world and how it works, God's word applies to me every bit as much as it does anyone else. And verse 9 says there are consequences for all of this, for thinking this way, for making these choices. Verse 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, just to remind us just how personally God had been involved with Solomon. These weren't just words on a page to him, although that would have been good enough. Twice he appeared to him, and even still he insists on going his own way. Verse 10. And he had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give, it, give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so God is telling Solomon the future division of the future division of his kingdom. And, and just make this crystal clear. The, the author wants us to know this. The division of, of Israel did not occur because of political intrigue. It did not occur because of changing economic conditions. It did not occur because of military conflict or anything else that the news might have said it occurred for it occurred because Solomon was disobedient to God's word. And God decided to do something about that, to make a consequence for that. And verse 9 says how all of this makes God, God feel. Verse 9 says the Lord was angry with Solomon. And the anger comes with consequences. God says, were it not for, for my covenant with David, were it not for my love for him and, his, and my promises to his house and my love for my precious city, Jerusalem, were it not for that, the entire kingdom would be taken away from you and you'd be another Saul, you know, a, a monarchy on the, on, the, on the dust pile of history, on the trash pile of history. But because of that, only the tribes of Judah and Benjamin will reside with your descendants. The other ten will be broken off. So here's the lesson for us. Disobeying God's word always has disastrous consequences, no matter who we are, no matter what we've accomplished, no matter what position we've risen to in life, disobeying God's word makes a fool out of even the wisest man. One man summarized Solomon's downfall this way. Solomon's love for spiritual values was replaced by a love for physical pleasures and material wealth. And gradually his heart turned from the Lord. First he was friendly with the world, then spotted by the world. And then he came to love the world and be conformed to the world. Unfortunately, the result of this decline led to being condemned with the world and losing everything. And to me, I think the most astounding thing about Solomon was that this was a man who knew God's word. Not only did he know God's word, he helped write God's word. And then he went and acted like he was immune from the consequences of breaking God's word. He acted like he was above it, as if he knew better than it. 
The typical practice in that time was for kings to marry many different princesses as a way of establishing alliances, ties with other, other kingdoms that, that might sort of, uh, you might have a rivalry with, rivalry with. Sort of the accepted political wisdom for establishing ties with other, other nations. And when God's word seemed to come into conflict with that, with, with the way things are done usually, Solomon treated God's word as if it were sort of a quaint set of instructions maybe for the little people. But us, us up here who have important jobs, we need to have every tool at our disposal. You know, the justification goes something like this. Hey, the nation needs to be secure, doesn't it? I'm doing this for God's people, aren't I? I'm establishing these alliances. The king must do what it takes. Yet what ends up happening is that he learns, not only is he not immune from God's word as, as, as a big shot king, not only that, not only is he not exempt from consequences for breaking God's word, not only that, he also learns that the consequences for his breaking of God's word of all people are not just, uh, he's not exempt from them, they're actually amplified. The consequences are much greater and more dire. That as a leader of God's people, it affects not just himself, and not just his family, and not just his community, but the entire nation and the history of God's people. All of these will be altered because of his sin. Disobeying God's word always makes us fools, always shows us we're being fools. Few people ever wake up one day and say, you know, I think I want to ruin my life. I think I want to make an absolute fool of myself. I never knew anyone who said that to themselves. I'll think I'll become an apostate today. I never knew anyone who just woke up one day and said that. The way it always works is you take one step, and then you take another, and those seem easy enough, and then you just keep going. You take baby steps toward your foolishness. You know, the devil gives us a test drive of sin. We get a small taste of it, and we say, that's not so bad. And that didn't ruin my life. And if some is good, more is better. And so we go down that road for a while until one day the sin catches up with us and it breaks everything in our lives. Think of it this way. Did the nation split the day of his first wedding to a Gentile bride? Did the nation split the day of the first wedding? No. Okay. One wedding turns into two. Two weddings turns into three. And then 700 weddings later, it does. You don't lose your faith. The first time you skip a church service, you could go to. I don't think you do. But then one turns to two. Two turns to three. And then who knows where it stops. A few, few years later, Sundays are only for brunch and football. You don't fall away from God the first time you neglect prayer. The first day you neglect prayer. But one day of neglected prayer turns to two. And then it just keeps going. Add those up for a few years. And you have absolutely no relationship with God. When we go away from God's word, when we neglect what we have said, when we act like we know better, when we act like we can sin with impunity, we always show ourselves to be fools. How could the wisest man who ever lived act so foolishly? Simply this, he disobeyed God's word. Number two, what else did Solomon do? He resisted God's discipline. And so this is verse 14. God's discipline begins to come to Solomon by way of rival kingdoms rising up and opposing him. This is verse 14. And the Lord raised up adversaries against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite, he was of the royal house of Edom. This is verse 21 of the chapter, verse 21. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own.
country. And so here is another opponent coming. This is verse 23. God also raised up an adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, Hadadezer, from Zobah. He gathered, <clears throat> gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band. And after, killing, after the killing of David, after the killing, sorry, after the killing by David, and they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. And you could keep reading this section and read about all the little kingdoms, all the little marauding bands who are a thorn in Solomon's side. The author of Kings wants us to know these are not just the political and military workings of the kingdoms of men either. That's what those kings would have thought, I am sure. That might have even been what Solomon thought. He might have had sort of a, a political explanation for all these little things happening, a sort of foreign policy sort of view of it. But the text says God is the one raising up these kings. God is the one raising up these kingdoms in order to discipline Solomon. As verse 14 again says, the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. As these leaders are named here, Hadad and Rezon are two of them, we're given a little bit of their history with Israel. And what, what you find as you read some of these details in this section is that these leaders had been adversaries of Israel in the past, but they had already been defeated and dealt with by David in his reign. They'd been sort of put down and put in their place and knew, okay, we can't really mess with Israel. Remember, David was, was more faithful to God, and as a result, God had given him victory after victory. But now that Solomon has turned away from God, the enemies are now reinvigorated and raised up by God to trouble Solomon all over again. And the intended message in all of this is, is to Solomon. Solomon, wake up. Stop disobeying me. Don't you know when you were obeying me, I gave you great blessing and victory. And when you stop disobeying me, I make things hard on you. When you stop being faithful to God, hardship and discipline follows. I also want to point this out. The irony is that Solomon had married many of these foreign women for political purposes, to keep peace with the surrounding nations. Maybe he thought he knew better than God. But now, despite Solomon's supposed political prowess, God is raising up those same surrounding nations he had tried to establish marriage alliances with. Those same surrounding nations are the one raising up to oppose him. Just notice, for example, in verse 1, Solomon, Solomon married an Edomite woman or Edomite women. But then in verse 14... Who does God raise up to discipline Solomon? The Edomites. And so we say, so much for that political alliance. What a bright idea that was. Verse 25 of the chapter. Verse 25. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Assyria. The rest of the days of Solomon are characterized by this sort of thing. And it's not clear if Solomon ever did get the message of God's discipline. When we disobey God's word, consequences and discipline often follow. And what I want to say to you is, that's a good thing. It's God's way of saying to us, wake up. Stop being disobedient. God doesn't hold off on the consequences of sin until the day of judgment. If he were a cruel, sadistic God, that is what he would do. He would trick us. He would lull us into complacency about sin. And then we'd wake up one day before, when it's too late. God doesn't do that. On the road down, uh, on, on, the, on the sin road, God, God puts speed bumps. There are times God wants us to feel the guilt and pressure as a result of our sin. It's uncomfortable to feel shame about sin. But it is good to feel shame if we are acting shamefully. 
And it's bad not to feel shame if we are feeling shame, if we are acting shamefully. Let me quote Solomon himself. Solomon himself knew this. He should have known it. This is what he said in Proverbs 3 and verse 11. Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The Lord loved Solomon. That's why he was reproving him. That's why he was disciplining him. That's why he was making him feel consequences for his sin. You know, the Hebrew writer quotes this very proverb to remind his readers that God uses discipline to teach his children obedience in Hebrews 12. Think of it this way. The devil is the one who makes sin easy. God is the one who makes sin hard. Because sin will kill us. And the devil doesn't want us to know that, and God does. Or or what about this? After rebuking the church at Laodicea, this church that's on the brink of worldliness and apostasy, Jesus reminds them, hand in hand with the rebuke, discipline is meant for our good. And so he says this, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Those words could have easily been said to God by said to Solomon by God. <clears throat> and you know, in the New Testament, God's discipline sometimes takes the form of church discipline. This, this discipline takes on a sort of corporate dimension. There is a process by which Christians attempt to bring back into the fold a brother or sister who refuses to follow God's word. It is an attempt to make sinners know, brethren who are sinning know, that sin is supposed to be hard on you. And it's not fun to sin. And it should be difficult on you. And so Paul says these sort of shocking words to 1 Corinthians 5 about a man who is living in sin and has been tolerated by the church. He says this to the church. You are to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the days, the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is saying, you need to let this person feel the full weight and consequences of their sin. And the hope is that as they experience discipline, as they experience an exclusion from God's family, that they will wake up and return and say, this is not good for me and this is not fun. Or something similar that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with them so that they will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. What Paul is saying is people involved in shameful behavior ought to feel shame about their behavior. We do not do our brethren headed for destruction a favor by affirming their choices. God was sending that same message to Solomon through raising up enemies. Solomon, wake up. Stop disobeying me. Don't you feel that I have withdrawn my blessing and protection from you? Do you not feel that? And should that not be a wake-up call to you? When he resisted God's discipline, he didn't get the message. Resisting God's discipline can make even the wisest man look extremely foolish. Finally, and number three, How could the wisest man who ever lived act so foolishly? Number three, he opposed God's servant. So, this is verse 26 of our text. As this man, Hadad, is attacking Solomon from the south, and then this other enemy, Razon, is attacking him from the north, God also has a servant from within Israel who is resisting Solomon with God's blessing. This is verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. 
The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. And when Ahijah lay hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give, it to, and give to you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Chamosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and I will give it to you, give to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. <clears throat> and if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you, and will build you a sure house, as I built David, and I will give Israel to you. So we're told here that in the recent past, Solomon had actually appointed Jeroboam to a prestigious construction position. He was in charge of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. He oversaw some of these building projects. But by this time, the nation was beginning to grow weary of Solomon's building projects and the forced labor he was making them do. So Jeroboam here, he meets a prophet of God named Ahijah. And Ahijah does this object lesson where he tears his garment into 12 pieces. He gives Jeroboam 10 of them. And he shows Jeroboam that Solomon's kingdom will be divided in just this way. And that you, Jeroboam, are to rule a majority of it. And once again, we are to remember, these are not just a couple of politically minded men working behind the scenes, trying to pull the strings. They're acting as God's instruments. Ahijah is a prophet of God, and and he speaks here to, to Jeroboam as his servant. Jeroboam is being raised up by God for this reason. God has instigated these events. Now, when Solomon learns of some of this, how does he respond to God's servant? This is verse 40. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. He tries to kill him. Not the first time a king has tried to kill a successor. Shades here of Saul. Jeroboam goes into hiding until Solomon dies. This is verse 42. And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. As Solomon dies, the stage is now set for the division of the kingdom. Solomon's foolish son Rehoboam assumes the throne. He immediately starts making some very foolish decisions. There's no irony about Rehoboam. He's not a, uh, he's not a, a foolish wise man. He's just a foolish man outright. The kingdom is split just like God said. You know, there is example after example in Scripture of hard-hearted people shooting the messenger. You know, when someone has already rejected God's word, as Solomon has, and when they have already resisted God's discipline, as Solomon has, 
I mean, it, there's, there's really no, no further step to take. You're already there. You're going to oppose someone who is God's servant. This is always what happens. You know, there's a long history in the Old Testament of God's prophets being rejected. The people didn't like what they said. They didn't like God's word. They didn't like the discipline that were trying to be exerted on them. And so to reject God's servant, to persecute God's servant, that's, that's an easy move. Stephen asked the question, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Acts 7.52. Paul and the rest of the apostles were lightning rods for those who didn't like the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus himself, not just a servant, but the Son of God, was opposed and rejected by those who came to save. This still happens today. People who don't like what God's Word says, people who don't like God's attempt to discipline them, often take it out on God's servants who are simply delivering that message. So when the preacher preaches something we don't like, we need to ask, is it that something has been preached that is contrary to God's word? Or is it that I am just uncomfortable because God's word is confronting me with an uncomfortable truth? You know, when someone pulls us aside, when someone brings some sin to our attention, some issue, some neglect, some attitude issue to our attention, often we want to lash out at that servant who has brought it to our attention. And when that happens... We cheat ourselves of a valid correction, and we may forsake an opportunity to repent. We ignore they are simply doing their job. They are working as servants of God. You know, when the elders raise a concern about some choice that we are making, we ignore them at our own peril. These men are servants of God. They are trying to lead the sheep of this flock toward God. That is the only motive they have. All they get out of this is trying to do God's work. So if they express a concern about our lives, if they point our attention to Scripture, and if we ignore them, we oppose God's servants doing God's work. Opposing God's servant like Solomon did makes even a very wise person otherwise extremely foolish. It was Solomon himself who wrote, A man's own folly ruins his life. Proverbs 19.3 A man's own folly ruins ruins his life. He said those words and then he acted them out. God gave Solomon unusual wisdom, incredible wealth, great opportunities, but he turned from God by making foolish decisions, which teaches us something about ourselves. We can be accomplished and savvy and smart and wise in many ways and then go and do something that's absolutely foolish. Smart people can do really dumb things. It happens all the time. So if we don't want to be Solomon, if we want to avoid his foolish path, I think it's easy enough to discern how to do that. It's easy enough to turn each of our points into a positive encouragement. Instead of disobeying God's word, what can we do? We can study it. We can learn from it humbly and actually try to do what it says and not find reasons why we don't have to do what it says. Do that, I guarantee you, you'll find wisdom. And instead of resisting God's discipline, We can accept it. We can humble ourselves before it and learn from it. We can repent. A wise man doesn't reject the discipline of the Lord. Solomon himself taught us that in Proverbs. And instead of opposing God's servants, what we can do is humble ourselves before God's servants. We can listen when people, when the people whose job it is to point us toward God's wise way, we can listen when those people point, we can look where they point, and we can say yes. We can let God say something to us through his servants. 
by doing these things, we cease making the foolish mistakes of Solomon. We start down the true path of wisdom. And so the question I have for you this morning is, do you need to repent of your foolishness? Do you need to repent of thinking that you are too smart for God's word? That you are exempt from his discipline? That you're smarter than his faithful servants? If you need to repent of that, if you want to come and seek God in all his wisdom, and to humble yourself before him, come now as we stand and sing and encourage you. Sunshine of love, wilt thou walk farther and farther away? Calling today, calling today. Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. Jesus is waiting, all come to him now, waiting today. Oh!